Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Queen Leval, and I work for the Finnish branch of the environmental NGO Friends of the Earth as their climate campaign coordinator. However, during my master's degree in environmental change and global sustainability, I focused on climate change adaptation issues in Southeast Asia specifically. So I've been waiting for the IPCC report that was released at the end of February with rather, how should we say, anxious anticipation. And today I'm really excited to have as my guest, Professor Winston Chow to explain to us what the report means to Southeast Asian countries and their rapidly urbanized population. Professor Chow is Associate Professor of Science, Technology and Society at Singapore Management University, and also one of the lead authors of the IPCC report, and specifically of the chapter on city settlements and key infrastructure. Welcome, Winston. It's great to have you on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Now, firstly, as a short explanation to those listeners who don't spend all their time hunkered down in the climate space, the IPCC stands for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and is an organization under the UN that produces reports on, well, everything climate change. The reports don't actually bring forward any new knowledge, but are instead meant to bring together the current best available information on the specific topics that they cover. Putting a report together requires years of work from hundreds of academics from all around the world who all donate their time to take part in this very iterative and long peer review and review process in general. Now, there are several types of IPCC reports including special reports, such as the one on the impacts of global warming of 1.5 degrees Celsius that made really big waves when it came out in 2018 and I think constituted a real climate awakening for many people, especially over here in the global north where I'm based. But this report that came out last month in late February is part of the regular assessment reports that the IPCC produces every five to eight years, roughly. And this round is the sixth time that this regular assessment is done. The assessment reports are usually divided into three parts. Last year, we got the first part, which covered the latest consensus on physical climate science. And now this one, where Winston, you lead author a chapter, is about climate impacts, adaptation and vulnerability. And in a few weeks, we will have the third part, which will be on actually how do we mitigate climate change and how do we reduce these impacts that we've been talking about? Is that right? Did I miss anything? No, you make it sound as though we're like the Star Wars trilogy or the Lord of the Rings trilogy, right? If you're the Star Wars type, then we've just finished the Empire Strikes Back part and it's going to be the Return of the Jedi part sometime in April. Yeah, it's a pretty good summary of what we've been doing for the past, how many years? Four, three to four years in this particular assessment cycle. Yeah, you know what? I think for those of us who spend all their time thinking about climate change, the IPCC really is as exciting as Lord of the Rings or Star Wars. And 
if you really think about it, we are talking about, you know, matters of life and death and really just issues that are as big in scale as is covered in those movies and stories. So I, I really like that analogy. You're welcome. Sure. <laughs> I'll be using that going forward. Right. So after the rather long and somewhat technical introduction to the IPCC and its reports that I just gave, I was wondering if you could tell us what to you were the three main takeaways of the latest report, especially with Southeast Asia in mind. Okay. Wow. Thanks again for the contact. Just adding in that this assessment report was about 3,700 pages long. We covered a lot of literature, not just on the climate science part, but all the impact all the vulnerability stuff and I think we covered something about 30 or 40,000 pieces of relevant literature in the entire 18 chapters plus six cross-chapter papers that we've examined. So trying to sum everything up into three distinct points for a very dynamic region is a bit of a challenge, but I will try. First is that the climate impacts within Southeast Asia, nay, for a lot of the world, is pretty bad at 1.1 degrees Celsius above the pre-industrial temperatures that the Paris Agreement has set as the baseline. It's going to get worse at 1.5, and every additional increment of temperature to 2 degrees C or 3 degrees C, which is what we are currently on, was to reach if no further mitigation action takes place. The warming is a threat to life on the planet. Currently, already several natural ecosystems are on the verge of extinction. They are threatened with extinction at 1.1. Warm water corals are struggling tremendously in the South China Sea, but especially more so in, let's say, the Great Barrier Reef. There's been noticeable attention to coral bleaching events that have happened there, as well as in the rest of the warm tropical waters around the world. And with every increase in temperature, much more of such bleaching events will occur. What makes it worse in this sense for the climate impacts when you translate it to climate risks in the future is that the climate-driven hazards, your heat waves, your sea level rise, your tropical cyclones, etc., etc., they are going to be more intense and frequent, but worryingly so, this occurs concurrently with the very rapid urbanization that's going on right now in Southeast Asia and beyond. Present day Southeast Asia has about 285 million people staying in urban areas. Middle of the century, it's going to effectively double to about 550 million. Most of this growth will take place by the sea, coastal cities and settlements. It's not just the big cities like Jakarta or Manila that everybody seems to be familiar with, but it's also the secondary, second-tier cities in which way more population growth, way more infrastructure development, way more built environment will take place in, typically like Danang, Denpasar, or these sort of smaller cities in Southeast Asia. So the problem is that when you combine the climate with the urban the risks that people will face is going to be much worse. So that's the first takeaway. Impacts, bad risks are going to be worse. Second is that one way to reduce these risks is to making adjustments to make sure that the exposure to climate impacts and risks are lowered. Action has increased. We've assessed that it has increased since AR5, the fifth assessment report in 2013-14. Definitely since the Paris Agreement, definitely since the Special Report on 1.5, but it's rather uneven and it's focused mainly on one type of adaptation, specifically that of infrastructure or grey adaptation, as opposed to others, let's say putting nature first and foremost to ecosystem-based adaptation or nature-based solutions. 
as well as on social policies that will reduce vulnerability, reduce the sort of exposure from marginalized communities in Southeast Asia, which unfortunately we have a lot of. Also, not enough adaptation action is being funded or being focused on the most vulnerable segments of society. So there is that multiple alert there. This adaptation action to reduce climate risk needs to be funded. There needs to be investment and it needs to be targeted at the right people in societies. The third and final takeaway would be that, like the Star Wars analogy I was saying, you don't want to end on a dour note in Empire Strikes Back. You want to end on something hopeful. Things may appear bad for now, but there is still a window of opportunity, albeit a very small one, to get back on track to keep warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius or below. Through this concept called Climate Resilient Development, CRD, it's embedded throughout the Summary for Policymakers in this assessment report. And there's uh, multiple chapters explaining what it is and how it can help in keeping warming to 1.5 and below. It combines adaptation with processes that reduce greenhouse gas emissions, that is mitigation, and also development with sustainability in mind. It's addressed at the most vulnerable members of society. It includes ideas of climate justice. It includes ideas of reducing poverty and hunger. It includes ideas of improving health and livelihoods. It includes ideas of improving access to clean water and renewable energy. It includes ideas of inclusivity in policy making. So it's a very transformative concept, which I think has to be flagged as the way forward to deal with the alarms that have been raising about climate change. So the report has, I mean, in the chapter that I authored with 11 other colleagues, we, we showcase examples, uh, including one in uh, Semarang in Indonesia, of how this idea of climate resilient development can work even in a relatively small but rapidly growing city in Southeast Asia. So yep, those three points I wanted to make, the impacts, the adaptation aspect, and that of climate resilient development. Gosh, it really is a behemoth of a report with so much content. And to be honest, I've only read the summary for policymakers. I think that is the one that most people, if they do get to the IPCC report, that's the part that they end up reading. And even then I had trouble picking out, you know, things that we could discuss today because there's just so much about it that I find very exciting. And I hope we'll have time to cover some of it today. But one of the things that really stuck with me from the summary for policymakers was this stark message that while near-term actions that limit global warming to close to 1.5 degrees will reduce the projected losses and damages related to climate change, they can't actually eliminate them all. So you've already yep. discussed, mentioned a few of them, coral bleaching, warming seas, heat waves, and everything also in the context of the rapid urbanization that Southeast Asia Indeed. is going through. I was wondering if you can maybe elaborate and mention a few others so that our listeners just get a very full-fledged picture of everything that <laughs> okay. is coming our way. <laughs> Yes, so you mentioned the summary for policymakers. It was only like, what, 38 pages and we were capped at 40 pages. And even in those 40 pages, there were, I think, 17 or 18 key messages or headlines there. 
you've pointed out the one that gets a lot of attention, that of current impacts and future risks. I'll limit myself to two, I guess, that are of import in the near term for Southeast Asia. One would be your typical climate-driven hazards, the stuff that happens because we have been putting in much more greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. And also we've unfortunately been deforesting or removing a lot of tropical rainforests, you know, coastal forests, mangroves, seagrasses, etc which are good carbon sinks. All this, the net effect is that we are going to see in the future a lot more hot periods of heat waves, high humidity. The urban aspect also contributes to this issue called the urban heat island. So you've got localized warming within cities that are on top of the greenhouse forced warming across the region. The change in the energy balance in the atmosphere results in a lot of very significant changes in precipitation, rainfall or snow events. You can have cases of too much water, which often translates to floods, or you can have cases of too little water, which translates into issues of drought. Also, in parts of Southeast Asia, north of, let's say, 6 degrees, or south of 6 degrees, all the way up to the subtropics, if you're in the Western Pacific, like the Philippine archipelago, like most of the Vietnam coast, you're going to be exposed to more frequent and intense tropical cyclones. So your really strong cyclones are more likely to happen based on the evidence that has been assessed on climate models, which as we know, leads to a lot of unfortunate death and destruction. The likelihood of that happening in the future is getting to be a concern in a lot of these coastal cities in Southeast Asia. And lastly, the big concern, while not necessarily one to be worried about in the near term, it's something that a lot of coastal cities are worried about by 2100, it's sea level rise. Every small island state, Singapore included, is facing that existential threat that if warming accelerates the melt of Greenland and Antarctic ice sheets, we are looking for multi-meter rises in sea level maybe as soon as by 2100. Already in the forecast, the probability of a once-in-a-century sea level rise event has considerably shortened. What was once one-in-a-hundred-year event would likely become one-in-one-year events, annual events. The probability will be shrinking that much because of climate change and sea level rise. For parts of Southeast Asia, it could occur depending on how much we warm, sometime by the middle of the century or just after for a lot of coastal regions. So that's the one that gets a lot of attention, all these climate-driven impacts. But there's one other thing that this report also places a premium on by assessing literature, looking into compounding and cascading impacts in which the climate hazards mix with human infrastructure, human society, that gives rise to combined impact that is oftentimes not focused on. For instance, your compounding impacts of tropical cyclones with COVID-19, you will have people who will be forced to go or migrate away from where they were comfortable in, where they had access to healthcare, into places where they are bunched together, where spread of COVID-19 would have increased. And there is literature showing that that was in effect over the past two years or so. There's also the cascading impact. So Acute climate impact combined with infrastructure in cities and the built environment would cascade in time. So the impacts from that climate hazard don't just stop when it ends. It propagates in the days, weeks, and months to come. Best example would be how your maritime ports and your airports, if they are exposed to, let's say, a tropical cyclone or a severe storm, that infrastructure gets damaged. It stops aid from coming into the city from other people for humanitarian purposes. It stops exports of food, exports of goods and services, which could be critical to the global supply chain. 
And that would put things offline for quite a bit and it would cascade down the line beyond the boundaries of the city. So there's a lot of assessment on that, particularly in coastal cities, given the key role that these places are in the trade networks around the world. So those, yep, those are the two main actions for impacts that Southeast Asian cities will have to face in the years to come. Right, that's a very sobering, sobering overview of what's coming. And I think it's really important to properly think about these compounding and cascading impacts because it really shows us how wide-ranging the consequences will be. And another thing that I noticed about the summary for policymakers was that there was a lot of emphasis also on the health impacts of climate change that maybe haven't been that much discussed in previous assessment reports, because you mentioned COVID-19, but of course that's not the only health issue out there and climate change will cause some of the diseases to spread in new areas where we're not that prepared to deal with them yet. Now, you yourself are focused on issues related to urban climate change and urban adaptations. I was wondering if you can also tell us where we can take action and what should be done to lessen these impacts that we've talked about. Okay, lots of things I could talk about. So if we were to look into, let's say, the adaptation to urban heat, I co-lead a project in Singapore since 2017. It's called Cooling Singapore, which its name suggests cools Singapore. We want to reduce heat risks and enhance individual thermal comfort by looking at ways that urban design, looking at ways that green infrastructure, so street trees, park spaces, green walls and green roofs, you know, everything green, so to speak, as well as reduce energy use and more efficient energy use can lead to better outcomes. We focus into integrated approach, an integrated suite of what particular adaptation approaches to reduce heat risk can work best for a low latitude, low wind, high heat and high humidity environment like Singapore and heck, most of Southeast Asia as well. We apply some of the work in terms of adaptation that has been assessed for urban areas in the chapter that I helped to co-author. But I also want to point out that for Southeast Asian cities, it's not just the heat issue or even the health issues that you mentioned, rightly mentioned in terms of vector-borne diseases like dengue and malaria. And previously it was Zika as well. And also one other thing I forgot to mention that you should also mention about health is that of mental health. There's a very strong you know, psychological stress that my colleagues have picked out on that has been reported on how climate change just increases degrees of a mental illness of various psychiatric disorders because of the constant concern and the issues that are raised from a warming environment. So that's another thing to look out for. Now, where was I? Oh, I got distracted because you, you can see why there's so much work that we do in climate change that, that touches on all these things. I will point on two other big climate risks of point that we have to be concerned about in Southeast Asia. One is air pollution. Air pollution is common in a lot of urban environments, mainly arising from industrial generation of pollutants or particulate matters, and also from traffic. Notoriously, Bangkok, Jakarta, Manila, key examples of that. It will get worse in the future if no action is taken. The health issues in terms of cardiovascular and respiratory illnesses from air pollution will be there. In peninsular Malaysia, Sumatra, Kalimantan, parts of Singapore, we also face another air pollution issue, that of the transboundary haze, where clearance of plantation crops that drive the paper and pulp industry and the oil palm industry in those parts of Indonesia and Malaysia, they get 
burned and the particulates that are generated from the aerosol haze gets transported across boundaries and affects a lot of urban and rural settlements in that part of the world. While the origins of that are primarily human-caused, the other issue that the IPCC notes is that these haze events are driven by El Nino occurrences and there's some evidence that potentially El Nino might be more frequent and intense under some warming scenarios. So it will make this risk much more complicated. And the third thing to consider is going on from the issue of compounding and cascading risks. A lot of supply chain disruption will be in effect from all your severe storms. The exposure of infrastructure that could be either state-owned or privately owned to flood events, to drought events or tropical cyclones events will also be heightened from climate change. And at least from my own discussions with the private sector, these exposure of capital that is already in pretty vulnerable places has been getting a lot of attention as a lot of private sector firms and corporations realize, hey, climate change will also affect us in a lot of ways that it affects governments and it affects people living in cities. So yeah, those are the key risks that I think should be of concern for Southeast Asian cities. And I think, as you mentioned, the private sector is already kind of waking up to these risks and they're doing something about it, I suppose. Indeed, yes. A lot of it will be, I think we can have another podcast or another discussion on this with how they deal with the sort of fallout from COP26 moving on to COP27 with the explicit discussion on losses and damages that will take place in November this year. So I guess I'll watch this space for how the private sector will integrate with the more multilateral engagements on this issue at COP. And I don't know if either in the IPCC report preparation or in your own research, You've looked into where we are on the public sector side with adaptation in Southeast Asian cities. (laughs) I have. This will be a good segue into how some issues of adaptation in Southeast Asian cities lead to the unintended and wrong consequences of maladaptation. Maladaptation simply is instead of reducing vulnerability and risk, The reverse occurs. People who are supposed to be protected from floods or from sea level rise or from heat waves, in fact, they become more exposed and more vulnerable, unfortunately. If, let's say, the public sector doesn't really account for the private sector or doesn't develop policies that are extremely inclusive, a lot of action takes place in which risk gets transferred from one part of the city to another because of the wrong adaptation choice. In the chapter that we helped to write, there was a case just outside of Bangkok where localized flooding occurred because of unregulated private sector development. So what happened were households, they took individual action to build flood walls around homes in an ad hoc manner, digging temporary drainage into the roadways or carriageways, which funneled water from their neighborhood into another neighborhood. So basically transferring the risk over. And these actions, what happened, it wasn't effective. They just displaced the flood water to other areas, created new problems in damaging roads and carriageways, creating negative impacts on other households rather than the own individual households and breeding discontent in the wider community. So instead of adapting to the flood risk, you make things worse. Maladaptation occurs. It's a great example of that. 
the concern is that there wasn't the right amount of regulation. There wasn't the right policies to deal with it at the broader neighborhood or regional scale for that part of Bangkok. The root cause of this was there was an improperly regulated private sector development or developers who just decided this will be a place for building a new environment. In the process of building that, you enhance the risk of floods happening for that place, which required the said adaptation to occur. Now, if there is a greater awareness from municipal governments, if there was, or in the case of Singapore, a state that is inclusive, that has knowledge of all these different stakeholders and proper regulation and proper standards employed in building infrastructures in cities, you then reduce that risk accordingly without the need for physical adaptation to occur. So that's, I mean, it's, it's one example there that uh, I, I don't want to say that it happens only in Southeast Asia. It's far, far more common throughout the world, uh, regrettably, as I would. But having seen this or having assessed this, we can also point out those potential solutions that we can take to reduce the level of maladaptation from occurring. What you just said really brought me back to what you mentioned earlier is that most adaptation that we're seeing is grey adaptation. It's related to infrastructure, when mm -hmm. actually some other non-infrastructural measures would even do the same work much better. It's just that we don't tend to think about those things as adaptation, like when we think about adaptation, we think about building some sort of infrastructure. Indeed. But in fact, we could just put in some measures or some regulation. You're so right. There, there is that bias towards the visible seawalls, the visible culverts, the visible drainage structures that equate to climate adaptation or protection, when two other approaches can probably do the same job in a much more resilient manner, going into that climate resilient development manner. One would be that Please include, and this should apply for not just Southeast Asian cities, but every other city as well, if you want to adapt or plan or implement successful adaptation practices to reduce climate risk. One is to bring nature back into the discussion. For the major hazards like heat waves, heat islands, floods, erosion in the coastline from sea level rise, or even droughts in that sense, you need to consider how natural watershed, the so-called floodplains or the sponge city concept, so integrating urban development with places with riparian areas which naturally flood, which gives you not just protection from the heat island or warmer temperatures because trees, as we know, they transpire and they cool the environment very well, but they also allow for water to infiltrate below the surface. It's a great way of flood control. It gives you that sort of ecosystem service. It's also providing a natural habitat for native or sometimes non-native flora and fauna species to populate the area, which was previously, you know, let's say a, a built environment without any natural habitats. And also there is a big burgeoning interest in, in the academic world of seeing how these urban green spaces are spaces for recreation for urban people like myself who are starved of going to a rainforest, starved of going to seeing the natural environment here in Southeast Asia, you can have park spaces that are large enough, that have native flora, that hopefully have native fauna as well, that you can help engage the community to see, hey, this is natural. And ecosystem service is also a critical benefit, a core benefit to the climate adaptation that goes on. So bringing nature back into the fold, back into the planning arena is something that a lot of cities should 
consider. And it's being taken up in a lot of cities around the world, including in Southeast Asia. I've mentioned Semarang. I've mentioned Singapore. Bangkok as well has been also improving some of its uh, green spaces to bring it into the heart of downtown Bangkok or on the city as well. So that's one approach. And the other approach for better adaptation planning is to have good inclusive policies that don't just favor select minority. You have much more stakeholders. You include people who are you know, not just your movers and shakers, not just your corporations, not just the, these people that have more financial clout. You include the marginalized, you include the vulnerable, you include local knowledge, you include indigenous knowledge as well. This is important when you combine it with the nature-based solutions. There's literature in the Semarang case study that shows how including mangroves by the coast, how best to locate them, how best to manage them. You want it to be successful and sustainable in the long run. You need to bring in that local knowledge. The elders of villagers will know where are the best places historically, where mangroves would thrive, where would be the best net result for fish along the coastline to sustain a community. And also, if you want to think commercially, where are the best places for eco-tourist opportunities in this particular region with that natural habitat in place? So these combined approaches go together with that physical infrastructure that is so you know, in vogue these days. And that would give you the best form of adaptation that leads to climate resilience for Southeast Asia and Southeast Asian cities. I'm really glad you mentioned Indigenous peoples because I really wanted to talk about that aspect of the recent IPCC report. I mean, I work in the civil society space and this report has been really celebrated by the numerous NGOs and civil society organizations, grassroots organizations for mentioning climate justice issues like Indigenous peoples, how they are more disproportionately affected by the climate impacts, but also how much knowledge they hold that could help us adapt to these. And you've already mentioned some examples of this, how it plays out in Southeast Asia. But the other really big thing about this report was that it mentioned explicitly, I think for the first time, colonialism and Indeed. how that affects our vulnerability. Let, let me, if you don't mind me interrupting you, this is yeah. important because if you look at the SPM, specifically headline statement B2, it's there. It mentions how colonialism, the impacts, you know, the consequences of that is a driver of climate vulnerability. In other words, how colonial powers, they fragmented societies, divide and conquer. It resulted in that path dependency so that people who were living in these different parts or grew up in these different parts of the city under colonial power would tend to have higher degrees of vulnerability. And for the summary for policymakers to be finalized, it required the 197 governments to sign off on it. And if they see colonialism in there and they accepted it, it's now there written in stone for future climate policy discussion. So let's not understate the importance of that uh, in the IPCC process and eventually in the UNFCCC process. Here's hoping next time you get loss and damage in there as well in that form <laughs> instead of losses and damages. I know there was quite a bit of hand-wringing and back and forth with that term as well. 
Do you think about Southeast Asia's history as colonized countries when you were working on this? Some of my other authors who have a stronger academic background on that in my chapter made sure that it is there front and center for the importance of indigenous and local knowledge with respect to vulnerability, with respect to colonialism. We know that, you know, you made the right point that if you look at the historical basis of climate emissions, despite not having emitted as much per capita compared to the global north, the highest degrees of risk of vulnerability of losses and damages and loss and damage will be faced by the marginalized indigenous communities or those that grew up in a very strong colonial environment, regardless of whether it's in Southeast Asia, but also in Sub-Saharan Africa and elsewhere. So the point is made very clearly throughout the report. It's very consistently made in terms of the importance of uh, indigenous and local knowledge. My chapter, I believe the penultimate paragraph in the executive summary speaks directly about the importance of indigenous knowledge. Let's see if I still have it with me. There is a point about intersectional, gender responsive and inclusive action can accelerate transformative climate change adaptation, the greatest gains in well-being in urban areas can be achieved by prioritizing investment to reduce climate risk for low-income and marginalized residents and targeting informal settlements. So it's there as an important anchor point in terms of climate justice that have to be raised. One other point I wanted to make, which is very encouraging, is not on the academic side, but it comes from the academic assessment. A lot of the emerging urban social movements dealing with climate justice, they are inspired by indigenous movements, focused on human rights, indigenous sovereignty and land claims, founded a lot on the importance of access to water and energy, on intergenerational justice, going beyond just the present day to the future, which is a key tenet of sustainable development, and also on gender and youth movements that are coordinated a lot on social media, coordinated a lot on podcasts like this, for instance. So this emergence has the critical importance of raising attention, of reframing policy discussions in a lot of cities in the global north and global south uh, that, that bring this issue of inequality and climate justice right to the forefront of decision makers' minds. So that level of engagement are the seeds of eventual climate transformation towards climate resilient development. So that's a good thing in my view. You mentioned so many things that I would love to talk about a little bit more, but we're out of time. So just to wrap up, I was wondering, because when the fifth assessment report came out, that was eight years ago, you were already involved in that process. And the world looked very different than it does now. We've had the big climate awakening through the 1.5 degree special report. We've had coronavirus. Podcasts weren't that big a thing back then as they are now. So I was wondering, where do you hope we will be when the seventh assessment report comes out, the next iteration of this one that you've just finished? Um, oh my. I think it will be around <laughs> 2030, right? So Probably earlier than that. Geez. Yeah, I was an expert reviewer in 2013, 2014. I had less gray hair on my head back then. One, I don't have a crystal ball. I really can't say what specific things will happen. What I would hope is maybe not so much the output of the seventh assessment report, but more of the mechanism, because we need authors, we need people from the global south to be more involved. If you are, you know, if you have published in climate change or climate impacts or anything on the science or the impacts or the mitigation side of it, don't be ashamed to put your name forward. 
you can approach your government or your focal points. You can approach your scientific organizations or academic organizations to nominate yourselves. The reason that this is important is that a lot of the really important climate action stuff that drives the agenda for change will happen in Asia will happen in Africa, the two biggest drivers of this century in terms of growth, not just urban growth, but you know human growth as well. And bringing the, the relevance of these regions into any assessment report in the IPCC or in the UNFCCC process is essential. Be involved in the IPCC is easier than you think. Being an expert reviewer doesn't take much. You just need to sign up and you need to read the chapters. And trust me, your contributions are read. We answered way too many reviewer comments over the past three years. I lost count of how many of them. And we have to address each and every one. It's part of the IPCC process. So perhaps the outcomes aren't as important as the involvement of delivering the next assessment report. And I strongly encourage listeners to this podcast to seriously consider being a part of it the next time this comes down. So I guess that's my two cents in uh, trying to drive change uh, for AR7. That's a really, really great point. We already saw how much difference and how much hope, including the reference to Indigenous voices, awoke this time around. So it would be really great to have the process and the knowledge that's included even more diverse and even more inclusive next time around. So this has been a really great discussion, at least for me, Winston. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, Thanks. For those who are interested in finding more about you and your research and urban climate adaptation, what's the best way to follow your work? Uh, I spend way too much time on Twitter. Just look at my handle, Winston TL Chow. The Cooling Singapore website is the domain is being migrated. Once it's ready, just look for me as well, coolingsingapore.sg, hopefully sometime later this month. But yes, you can find me on Twitter more often than not. Great. Thank you so much again. My name is Queen Leva and my guest today was Winston Chow, IPCC lead author and associate professor of science, technology and society at Singapore Management University. Thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.